Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert is a writer, speaker and thought leader and like a whirlpool of effortless seduction. She is perhaps best known for her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, which chronicled her personal journey of self-discovery and inspired thousands of readers. I'm reading this. What I actually thought of Elizabeth Gilbert is that she embodied the qualities that you would anticipate if you've read Big Magic or um, Eat, Pray, Love or any of her fiction, that she's kind of got an unsentimental, unmorkish self-love and love in general a sort of a, a sort of a very unabashed kind of um i would say optimism and warmth without it being you know dumb and i would say that that kind of the fact that elizabeth gilbert is someone that you might have encountered through the sort of a new age lens has more to do with the problems of commodifying and marketing spiritual content than the origins of that content and the creation of it. So it says more about sort of corporatism, the way that, you know, anyone who writes a book or creates anything is going to have to at some point interface with institutions that um, commodify that content. She's essentially, I'm saying she's great. She was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. Her latest book is City of Girls and it's available now in paperback. Um, hey, sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and follow me, Russell Brand, on Instagram, at Rusty Rockets on Twitter. You know all of that stuff. Before we get into this lovely conversation with Elizabeth, let's have a look at some of the things you had to say about David Eagleman, which was a podcast before Ricky. Did you enjoy the Ricky Gervais podcast? It was bloody good, wasn't it? Samuel Glassman said, What about the possibility that those limiting systems are in fact actualising, for instance, in the way that writing a prompt spurs creativity? Hmm, you, you, I need to do that. The existence of those structures may belie the fact that man cannot operate without them. Well, yeah, we do definitely need structures and interfaces, and I think you're talking about the limitations of language and maybe even economic systems, are you, Samuel? I'm going to assume that, although if that wasn't what you meant, then it's really unfair that I'm arguing with something that you weren't even even claiming but um, my point is that whenever you examine the apparent limitation say to progress in you might say in medicine or in social equality or you know ecology if you find that there's an economic system underlying it then that's curious isn't it and you can't argue that that system of limitation is uh, opportune although that is the exact argument that without capitalism you can't have progress or whatever but my sense is that we're not finished yet. Let's keep moving forward. It's not like a banging a gavel and saying capitalism bad, commercialism bad. It's just like that don't seem to be working anymore. Well, thanks for it, though. What's next? Brendan Freeman. I love the back and forth ideas opposed to complete agreement on this discussion. Well, yeah, there's a lot of that. Lisa Hubbard. I love David Eagleman. Thank you for sharing this. Lisa, I agree with you. I sat there thinking, I love this man. And Dakota says, thank you, Russell Brand, that's who I am, for facilitating these conversations. Your influence is necessary and appreciated. What a lovely thing to tell me. Okay, let's get into Elizabeth Gilbert now. This is a beautiful conversation. Why don't you allow yourself to be gently asphyxiated by the effortless tidal charm of Elizabeth Gilbert? Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. 
what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on Under the Skin to speak with me. I'm grateful to you. Have you been? Have you been getting on? Well, it's a, it's like a bifurcation. There's there's the level of my public self in terms of my connection to humanity and my sorrow and anxiety about what's happening to millions and millions of people. Um, and the you know this I've, I've sort of divided it into these three categories of, of recognizing that there are people who are going to a very small percentage of people who will suffer from this physically, and then an enormous percentage who are suffering from it financially and economically and will for a long time. And then even more, it's like exponential from there, a number of people who are suffering from it emotionally and and psychologically who are in real trouble with, um, with pain and fear and anxiety. So part of my heart belongs to that conversation but then as far as how I'm doing personally I'm fine <laughs> like I'm I'm somebody you don't need to worry about in this I'm I'm good I love where I am I'm I've been hearing a lot of people say that everyone who's alone in quarantine wishes that they were with people and everyone who's with people wishes they were alone but I want to speak on behalf of the people who are alone and are super fucking psyched to be alone. <laughs> to me, it's like, I, you know, I used to pay for this. I used to pay to go on retreats and practice isolation. And now it, everything is colluding to help me have a lot of solitude and I'm, I don't want to waste it. So I've been really deepening into solitude and isolation and, and loving that. Um, while at the same time, holding that part of myself open to, as I said, sorrow for a lot of other people, but I'm good. <laughs> what connection do you feel that you have to the person you were prior to success? And do you think it's a significant distinction, even the success in and of itself? Does that cause a kind of rupture? Does fame cause a kind of rupture? Do, do accolades, approval and suddenly being to a degree mm. public property um, separate you from original intention? I think it would be different if if it had happened to me rather than I did it. So um, if if everything that the world knows about me, they knew because somebody had uncovered it. And so I don't know why anyone would want to like uncover the secret life of a bartender in New York. But like, it, you know, if 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 I had been thrust into the public against my will, but everything that everybody knows about me is literally everything I've told them um, and everything that I've chosen to tell and everything that I've chosen to share. So it doesn't feel like a victimization of any kind because it was it was a decision. It was shocking to me to see. I mean, I couldn't have expected nobody would have anticipated the the what it became in the world. But there's also um, a level at which. I very quickly understood that that there's me and then there's that book. Of course, we're talking about You Pray Love. That book had its own soul, its own, its own purpose and its own agenda and its own ambitions even. Um, and because I happen to be enough of a pagan animist that I believe that all ideas have will and have consciousness and want to be made manifest and have ideas of their own of what they want to be. And they just sort of use us. <laughs> so there's, there's a nice little tidy separation that I could do in that of thinking, 
of looking at that book the way a parent might look at a really overachieving child and be like, wow, you really, you really wanted to go out in the world and do something good. I mean, you're old enough to drive, go, go do it. You know? Um, so, so I, it, I detached myself from it at a certain level. And then on the worldly level, I would be really disingenuous if I didn't say that it made my life a lot better because it made me independently wealthy. And that's not a joke, you know, like to be able to be an artist and especially a female artist who I never again have to worry. I I get to do whatever I want. I get to make whatever I want. I get to create whatever I want. And I live simply so it's not a struggle. That gift is, is so worth whatever tiny inconveniences came from it. And then the last thing I'll say is that I'm not that famous. <laughs> like I, I'm not like I can, I'm, I'm not a Kardashian. I'm not you. I, I can walk around anywhere and it's very rare that people recognize my face. So it hasn't been a huge, it's a perfect way amount of famous that, that doesn't actually ruin your life in a big way. So, um, once again, I, I will just say I'm good. <laughs> I'm all right. With the, um, pagan, pagan, animist perspective of seeing ideas mm. and creativity as sort of having their own inherent consciousness it, it, is that something that you you have always intuited and understood or is it something that as you have slowly understood and how do, how does that affect the way you approach creativity and and relationships this is my favorite thing to talk about. So I'm doing like a, my body's starting to get jittery with excitement, but um, it, it's something that I always intuitively understood, didn't necessarily have language for, and then later discovered is how human beings have regarded creativity essentially forever until the industrial revolution, um, or it, maybe until the age of enlightenment. And we can go back maybe to, to the middle of the 18th century. Um, but prior to that, and, and and then ongoingly in any culture that has managed to avoid being corrupted by the Age of Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, that's just how it is. It's how children get it. It's it's We understand it instinctively to be something that's coming to you from someplace else um, and, and, and that you are not the commander of, but you are in a relationship with. And, um, and it's not, you're not the hand puppet of it because you bring your own, your own will and your own consciousness to it. And then together you and the mystery make a thing and you negotiate with each other. Um, it has a will, you have a will, you know, when I'm writing a novel, especially because those worlds are so fantastical, the, the characters will pull at me to go in a certain direction and then I'll negotiate with them and say, no, I'm insisting that this chapter remain this way. And then other times I'll give them the chapter. Um, you know, it's, it's this, it's, it's a conversation that I consider to be the most interesting possible way that you can spend your life is to be in constant creative response and conversation with a mystery that I do not understand and, um, and don't know the source of, and will never know the source of, but I'm willing to spend my entire life engaged with it. Um, so, so I did that sort of intuitively. And then what I saw as I went into the world, I saw everyone's tormented relationships with creativity and I always puzzled at it. Um, people seemed to be in a war with that thing rather than being in a dance with it. Um, and, and not only that, the war had been fetishized by culture so that your badge of honor 
as a serious artist is how destroyed you are by it. Um, and the ultimate badge of honor, of course, is to is is to become the ultimate human sacrifice to it, and and become one of the multitudes of of creative suicides. Um, and 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 I never, I was like, why do you guys want to? Why do you want to fight with something that doesn't want to fight with you? Um, why do you want to? Why don't you just want to? Why don't you just want to talk to it? <laughs> why don't you just want to talk to it? Why don't you just want to? Um, work with it, dance with it, engage with it, surrender to it sometimes. Um, why? And I feel like it's really masculine. I feel like it's really modern. I feel like it's really Western. I feel like it's really male. It's this idea of like, we will have dominion over this thing or it will, one of us has to die, right? One of us has to die in this battle. And I'm not interested in that. I was never interested in it. So you, you, you feel that creativity is continually wrangled into a kind of utility and you see that as a, a kind of a post-enlightenment rational repurposing of of the mystery i was curious about there about elizabeth what you were saying about you know death and the struggle often being a, a mortal one by the idea of um sacrifice human sacrifice the necessity of sacrifice to access divinity and uh, do you do you see the presence of that idea in that struggle or do you think that it's entirely the result of something beautiful that wants to be unfettered coming into collision with more recently acquired impulses and instinct instincts uh, like you're saying like you know trying to repurpose it rather than do you not think that in its origin creativity has a degree of destruction like it blazes through the person well i think that the only really honest answer would be we can't know um because if we knew then it wouldn't be the mystery um so the the humble answer would be we can't know the only way that i would be able to respond to that would be to say how's that working for you <laughs> You know, um, how's it working for you to see it as a war? Um, is that, is that you, are you good there? You know, um, do you want to stay in that war? Do you feel you have to stay in that war? Have you, has anyone ever introduced you um, to some non-romantic, and I'm capitalizing romantic there, because that's a really romantic idea, like German romantic idea, Um has, has anybody ever introduced you to a non-romantic idea that's based not in the romance of the blaze, but in the love of being a humble and amused and bemused servant and playmate with this thing? Um, and and may I may I introduce some ideas? <laughs> you know, that's really like what that's like what my book Big Magic was was me sort of raising my hand and being like. And it took me years to do it because I wanted to feel that I had the authority to do it. I wanted to feel like I had enough years with this thing under my belt to be able to say, hey, guys, and it is mostly guys, um, hey, guys, there's another way, <laughs> you know, um, there's another way where it doesn't have to be based in the fetishization of destruction and self-destruction or in the war of dominance of you trying to kill this thing or this thing trying to kill you. Um, there's another way. And, and 
if you're interested, here's what I've, here's what I've learned, you know, um, a modest proposal, maybe put down the knife, you know, maybe back away from the burning vehicle. Um, and I know that a lot of people are really scared to put down the knife and back away from the burning vehicle because they associate creativity with that high of the drama and the rage and the fight and the battle and the torment. And they're afraid that if that goes, then they'll just become like a suburban vanilla person who can't make anything. Um, and I don't believe that that's true. I think you may actually have a, a flowering of more creativity than you've ever had. Have um, you in your own relationship with creativity experienced that destructiveness? Um, and how, and if yes, or even if no, how does that relate to addiction, which has I understand and accept as a kind of um, deviation from a kind of creative impulse towards oneness, towards service, towards love, you know, deviated primarily towards ego and self-centeredness. Uh, the reason I ask Elizabeth is because of um, reading um, some of your writing on being like a seduction addict and mm -hmm. love addiction. And do you think there's a a co correlative between uh, warped creativity and warped relationship, relationship becoming destructive and self-consuming, harmful. Yeah, I do. And I think that the, I think that it's about a, an unfettered, um, unloved ego um, needing to, consume, swallow, control, and command everything um, in order to feel, in order to feel safe, in order to feel alive, in order to feel, um, in order to feel anything, that it's all got to be amped up and ramped up and, and revved up. And for some reason, Russell, I don't know why, it's, I can only say it's grace because I didn't do anything for it. And that's the definition of grace is that you're given something that you didn't deserve. <laughs> you're given something that you didn't fight for. You've just given it. I was given, it's almost like the universe or whatever, the mothership. <laughs> I was given one area of my life where I was shown what a healthy relationship looks like. And that was in my relationship to my writing. And and that was shown to me from a very early age. This is, this is sanctuary here. Um, this is the place where the war doesn't happen. And every once in a while, and then the rest of my relationships were just a shit tornado um, because I had that, the God-sized hole that I was trying to fill there. Um, and, I've, and I've often said, God, I wish I could just relate with, with humans, and I'm learning how to, to relate with humans with as much detached gentle, loving amusement as I relate with the muse, <laughs> um, where it doesn't have to be such a war. And it can just be like, isn't it interesting that we're here? Like, that's, that's the thing is like, isn't it curious that this is happening? What do you think we can do here? Like this gentle kind of playful curiosity instead of like this battlefield. Um, and every once in a while, my ego has, when I see my ego come into my work, it doesn't, it's not there as much anymore, but it's still, it still shows up sometimes. But I'll give you an example of, of, of when I was younger and I didn't quite yet know how to do this dance with the work. I remember working on my first novel and 
and it wasn't good. And, and, it, and why would it be? I'd never done one before. Like, why would you think you should be able to come out of the gate and know how to do something that you've never done before? And I was probably 75 pages into it. And I had, I was in that place of terrible gap that people get into in creativity where I had, um, Ira Glass has spoken about this beautifully where I had, I knew what good was, but I couldn't do it. Um, so I'd been a consumer of writing for so long that I knew the difference between good writing and bad writing, but I couldn't create really good writing yet. I almost could, but I, but I couldn't quite. And so that frustration of that, that canyon between what you know is good and what you can do. And that's what the struggle of the young artist is, is, um, is I'm not, my abilities have not yet caught up to my taste, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and my sorrow and my disappointment at the fact that I can't create what I see in my mind is, is like a toddler having a tantrum. It's really frustrating. And, um, and I remember being really devastated, my ego, it's a real ego blow, you know, my ego being really hurt and wounded by that. And I wanted to quit. And I was in tears. I mean, I had tears on pages of all my first books. Um, and, and I just, I remember actually standing up in the room where I was working and just, and it was just this pushback against ego. It was this this physical thing I had to do where I just stood up and I said to the universe, I never promised you I would be a good writer. I just said I would be a writer. Okay. So that's all I have for you. You know, (laughs) this is, I, and, and I never promised I would write good books. I just said I would write books. So this book is as good as I can make it. And I'm not going to, it's almost like a, a jujitsu flip where the ego turned to my own benefit, where I was able to use it in a good way to say, I'm not going to be somebody who goes to her grave with 75 pages of an unfinished novel in her, in her desk drawer. So this is, this book is going to be finished and it's going to be finished at the level that I can do it. And that's all I have for you guys. Um, and, and I always sort of refer to like creativity as you guys, it always feels like a mass to me of, of like, very complex spirits. I'm like, you guys are getting what you're getting. <laughs> you know. And if you want me to write better books, you might want to like bestow a little more talent on me for the next one, because this is literally as far as I can go. And, and that stubbornness to say that I would rather have it be done and lacking than to die on the cross of perfectionism um, is, is what made me be able to write my first few books. And now I don't even have to have that battle anymore because now it's, it's presumed that I'm just going to give you what I've got. And this is the best I have. And, um, like I remember with my novel, the signature of all things, there was a character in there. I could just couldn't get her right. I, she was the only person in the book who I felt like I didn't know. And, um, and I couldn't download her. I just could and I did what I could, but I always felt like she was a clumsy, awkward kind of two dimensional character. And then my hope was, as I wrote it, was that I would get away with it because a lot of art is what you can get away with, right? So I was like, maybe no one will notice. Maybe it's just me. And and hopefully when people read this book, like they'll just, they won't see it. They won't see how I patched this thing together in a shoddy way. So I give it to everyone I know who are my first readers and they all come back and say, we love the book, but this character doesn't work. I was like, ah, fuck, I didn't get away with it, right? <laughs> Sometimes you do. And, um, and then I was like, I gave it to my editor and, the, and he said the same thing. And I, and I, it was such a lovely thing about the difference of being a, a mature age artist versus a younger artist is that I was able to say, you know what, you guys actually can't fix this um, because I don't have the skill. You know, if I could do this better, I would have, but this is exactly as much as I can do with this character and no one's going to die 
from a book that has a two-dimensional character in it. And also there's other stuff I want to do now. So this is the book, you know, um, this is the book. And then when it came out, the reviews often mentioned this character <laughs> as, being, as being lacking. And the beautiful thing about just owning that is that I could read the reviews and be like, it's so cute that you guys think I don't know this. I just, if I could do this better, I would, but this is all I have. Um, and, and that's the humility of knowing your limit, which is the opposite of that thunderous, fr that massive ego that's like, I won't put out anything to the world unless it's, you know, it's Scorsese the night before he released Raging Bull saying like, you know, if you don't, I will, he literally said, I will commit suicide if you don't give me one more day to edit, you know, like I'm not going to ever commit suicide because I failed on a character. I'll just, I'm interested in doing the next thing because <laughs> I like the process of it so much that I'm curious about like, okay, well, that's, that's what, you know, that's what I've got there. Now what? And I wish I had that level of detachment with everything in life. Cause then imagine just how playfully you could engage with, um, with all things to be like, well, yep, there, there's a fail. <laughs> I'd never identified the, uh, machismo in that attitude before. I'd always taken it as standards but of course standards must be derived from an ideal and I see from what you're saying that there'll be a tremendous relief in approaching creativity from a place of acceptance <laughs> and not feel the need to posture and not feel like my face flush if I read a negative review to be free enough to sort of think i don't care that, that was that was what came <laughs> i really like that <laughs> that's as good as if i could write a better book i would that's what i always want to say to the critics like <laughs> you and i are in agreement you and i are in agreement this isn't as good as as maybe hillary mantel could do it but um you know it's as good as liz gilbert can do it in the year 2016. now maybe 10 years from now i can do better but um but the only way that's going to happen is if i keep if i start a new thing you know, um, so I'm going to have to let this one go and then go, you know, work my craft in another way. <laughs> I also like that you were saying that there objectively was a two dimensional character that you <laughs> and every other single person that encountered that character <laughs> before. No. And, you know, can I can I say one other thing about it? it was um, it wasn't just that I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. You know, I'm I've worked as hard. There was also another thing, which is that what it would have taken to fix that character would have meant that I would have to dismantle the house that I just built down to the foundations because that's what I would have had to do. I would have to go back and undo. And so much of the book was so good. So much of that house was so good that I feared that if I tore it down to its foundations because of the protest over this two-dimensional character to, re to redo it, I may never get back what was really a pretty cool house. The roof worked, you know, the... I liked I liked it the way it was mostly, and um, and I'm willing to be okay with that with mostly, because <laughs> you could risk. I mean, if you go there's that character in Emma in Emma Bovary who's oh no it's not it's in the it's in the plague appropriate for this moment. Um, there's a novelist who never gets past the first sentence. Maybe it's Emma Bovary. Somebody will know. Don't tweet at me, people. Yeah. Um, somebody <laughs> there's a novelist who never gets past the first sentence of his of his novel because he's trying to make the world's perfect first sentence. And that's the, you know, the, the danger that you can get into is that you end up making nothing because 
you won't make anything that isn't perfect. And that's just your ego obstructing you from having what could be a really good time. Yeah, I recognize that obstacle a lot. I'm writing, obviously, a couple of things at the moment. One, like a, a script that I'm writing with a, like a notation process with the director and producer. And I find it very hard. I've not written a script before. And I find it very difficult to feel free in that format and even confident in the same way a, a lot of what i do professionally relies on uh, kind of adrenalized spontaneity i've heard you talk about live work and when you get um, when you give talks or, or lectures or, or whatever you however you describe them that you f feel like it's a like a high wire act and for me that sort of high mm. frequency consequence uh, like it's a useful spur to take me out of self-reflection and self-analysis and gives me that kind of appetite to just keep going keep going it will come trust it tr like and then I don't you know m my inner critic or sort of you know the mm. egoic voice is um, like a relents I feel very comfortable but with sort of different types of writing, like particularly writing that demands structure. That's, I think mm. I've found that, I've found that, I've found that harder. It's hard because, so I've said this, when you mentioned a high wire act, um, it's easier to run if you have, I actually took a circus class when I was in college because I went to the kind of college that would give you credit for taking a circus class. And, um, and I'm really glad I did for one piece of information that I learned when we were learning how to walk on a wire, it's so much easier to run across a wire than it is to walk on one. And it's almost impossible to stand on one. Um, there's something about momentum that, that will keep you at your center. But if you stop, you know, it's, 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 um, Wiley Coyote. It's like Wiley Coyote looking down and stopping when he's up over the cliff and that's when he falls. Right. So, so there's a danger in, for somebody like you, who's used to running across wires um, to stop, you know, to work in a labored process where you're going over line by line. Um, it's, I would imagine it's like stopping in the middle of a high wire and you're like, whoa, whoa, you know, all of a sudden there's doubt and there's, um, you know, and there's an awareness of how high you are and there's awareness of then all the other stuff comes in, how much you're being paid. What happens if this doesn't work? You know, did I choose the wrong partners? Like all of a sudden wow. you have time in that stopping to panic. Um, and your mime gave me I, vertigo. <laughs> I'm like, <"Whoa!" laughs> yeah. and and so i this is actually curiously i think as i'm saying this i'm realizing this is why one of the reasons i never collaborate with people on writing is because i need to run um i need to do it really fast but when i sit down to write a novel um a friend of mine said it's like watching me write a novel is like watching somebody swim the english channel in one breath because i've prepared for it for years with with but when i sit down and i'll block off a month I won't stop, you know, I mean, I'll stop to go to sleep and to eat, but it's like, I don't look back. I don't revise. I don't edit because of all of that. It's like, this thing has to be laid down really fast or else I'm going to lose my nerve. Um, so I don't know how to advise. I wouldn't know how to do that with a collaborator um, because you sort of have to work at their pace. Um, so my, all I'm saying is my heart goes out to you. If this is a difficult process, um, I would imagine that it is. Yeah, no, it is. Did someone teach you that, or like, are you, like, did you do you think about or like you know Kerouac and like, you know first thought, best thought, go forwards? Is it something that comes from a kind of a literary understanding of creative process or an intuitive understanding? 
it's intuitive because I'm not like Kerouac because Kerouac didn't prepare, you know, he just dove off the building, you know? Um, like, so when I sit down to write a novel, it's, I've built this foundation where I've spent three or four years preparing to write it. Um, so it's, it's a combination of like incredible OCD and, 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 um, hyper management, controlling research, index cards, boxes, files, outlines, you know, like I really architect this thing. But then once it's time to actually go, it's just like, go, you know, like go, 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 go. And I almost, I have to put blinders on to the world and I also have to put blinders on to my own, you know, to my own, the terrorists who live in my own head who are there to, to say, you know, you can't do this. This is where you're going to fail. Um, you know, your best work is behind you. And now, and if I move fast enough, I can outrun them. Um, and, and be like, yeah, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Go write your own book. (laughs) Elizabeth, like when you do that, that preparatory uh, uh, process, is it, um, both structural and, uh, research, for example, into, botany or the period that you're writing about is it both of those things mm-hmm. do you also go this like this is going to be chapter one this is the insight and instant this is the midpoint this is the climax do you, do you have all of like when you're at that point that you're diving into a process do you have the research and also a kind of map yeah what i do is i and again it's taken me years to figure out the balance of how to do this but i have all the research um, which I always think of as a, like the whole, the whole evolution of my life from out of suffering into serenity has been as much serenity as I've got, which isn't fully, but what I have of it has been based on befriending myself. Um, and it's not about self-love. It's just about like a real sense of friendship, um, of, of alliance, of a sense that, um, And I am going to answer your question, but I'm going off on this little footnote in it. Um, For some reason, and I do not know why and can't know why, the universe gave me stewardship over over this person. Um, They dropped me into this body and they dropped me into this spirit and into these talents and into these mental illnesses and to these addictions and to this culture and this moment and said, um, we're going to give you this one. You know, we're going to give you this one to take care of. And I like to think that they did that because they thought that I would take good care of her, um, that I would learn how to take good care of her. It's taken me years to figure that out, but that I would be a good steward of this being. And creativity is where I learned that because what I learned was that the more I can do the preparation and the research, the more I can be a good research assistant to, and project manager to help myself. When I get to turn from that into my purely creative self, I have the most amazing waves of gratitude to the Liz who sat there for four years and collected all that information that was going to be needed in the moment by the Liz who's the high wire artist. Um, and so I'm, so when I'm bored and I'm sitting at the New York public library performing arts center, doing, you know, hours of research on New York city theater in the 1940s for my new book that I was working on. And, and I'm, and I'm just bored like a student, you know, just sitting there learning and, and taking notes what gets me through it is I say, future Liz is going to be so fucking psyched when she's reaches into that index box, card box and pulls out exactly the fact that she needs in that moment to be able to write that scene without stopping. And this is a gift from my current self to my future self out of 
a sense of loving friendship and kindness. It's the same thing. It's the only thing that gets me to floss my teeth. You know, I'm like, future Liz, I got this for you. Like, you're going to be so psyched when you still have your teeth when you're old, because I, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing this for you. And so when I'm, when I'm working on the book and I'm moved from being research assistant, project manager, um, you know, disciplined, organized, the grind, you know, getting it all together. Once I get, once I'm ready to then become like the highest incarnation of myself that I can be is that six weeks that I sit down and write a novel in one, in one go. It's thrilling. It's thrilling. But in order for me to be able to do it, all that groundwork has to be laid. And then as I'm doing it, I reach in, you know, I'm like, oh shit, how, you know, how much would a stage manager be earning in 1950? Pull out the fact it's right there and I can keep going. And I'm like, and I literally will put my fist in the air and be like, past Liz, you're the (laughs) best. (laughs) You know, thank you so much. It's like this salute across time. Um, and, and there's something really loving and fun about that is this sense of, and it's the opposite of a self-destructive artist. It's, it's like, it's a, it's an artist who's helping her future artist do what she needs to do in the easiest possible way. And it's so sweet. There's like this dearness to it, this affection to it. How can I help you? How can I help you in this moment to make this easier or in a moment four years ahead? God, that's really beautiful. You have such a, a vibrant and awake perspective on yourself and your life and more broadly life Um, where where have you noticed in the past that you were acting unconsciously is it in relationships when you were when you were younger in the early part of your life is that where you feel like oh there I was attaching to people I was being selfish I was unaware yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to front like that ended um, <laughs> when I was younger. Like that's an ongoing. That's my. That's my Achilles heel, and um, and it's. And I. I'm trying to think how much I want to disclose, not because of my own privacy, but someone else's. But like I've, I'll just say I've recently learned that. Oh wow, you still have work there, you know, um, and you thought you had that in the bag and you really don't. Um, and you're still smoking, smoking somebody like they're a crack pipe. Um, and then getting really, really mad at them when the crack is gone, (laughs) you know, like, and, um, and, and feeling, you know, the great lie, the great lie that, um, you're going to complete me. I'm going to complete you. I can't, I can't live without you. You can't live without me. I'm going to save you. You're going to save me. Um, you hurt me. Another really great lie. Like you caused this wound that I'm feeling. There's a level of consciousness now that at least I have, um, I'm thinking in a relationship that I was in where at least I had the level of consciousness when I was triggered, when I was upset, when I was grasping, clingy, needy, gross, you know, just desperate and unlovable even to myself. Um, that I was able to, there's some part of me that's formulated enough now that I was able to articulate to this person, just so you know what you're witnessing, you didn't do. Um, This came, this was established decades before I ever met you. This is, this is pain that I'm in, but it's not pain that you put in me. It's pain that I came with. I'm just feeling it right now. And I'm, blaming you and I want you to fix it. (laughs) And I realized that that's irrational. Um, How are we going to get through this moment? You know, um, and, and at least there's like some level of awareness of like, 
I'm watching myself doing it. I'm not, I'm not able to not do it, but at least I see what I'm doing. And at least I've, I've passed the point where I, I think, you know, I'm very early on established with whoever I'm in any kind of relationship with. I've got me, you know, I am, I am my responsibility and, and I'm never going to roll Liz under the bus fully. Like I might slip, but the amount of affection that I've developed for her, for Liz over the years means that like I, there, I've got her, you know, um, now let's see if we can do something Gosh. together. Um, and sometimes the answer is no, <laughs> sometimes. And then it's like, yeah, it just can't. It's lovely that yeah. you are not sort of, um, stymied or inhibited by a kind of an understanding of self say that requires a kind of condemnation and damnation of the ego in order to access the transcendent. When you're talking about your, her, her, um, sort of habitualized former relationship behavior, which you still sort of feel resonant echoes of now, even if you can sort of in the moment witness them to some degree and be aware enough to communicate that you know you're that you're not totally immersed in them how hard is it to maintain and even encounter that awareness in a culture that doesn't acknowledge or celebrate the sacred but prioritizes the material what do you think are the consequences results of living in cultures where sacredness is relegated or uh, neglected and uh, some uh, and obscured and and do you think it has a relationship to what you're saying though, for trying to create sacredness in say in a personal relationships or romantic relationships that's such a beautifully articulated question i think the answer is is just uh, like yes <laughs> you know, um, i think that 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 you know, our culture is so broken. Um, and, and it's, it's not its fault. You know, it's not its fault. There's an innocence in it as, as destructive as it is, as toxic as it is, as, as many lives as it's claiming. We didn't do it on purpose any more than an addict becomes an addict on purpose. Um, you know, um, and, and the culture isn't doing its violence at us it's just doing itself because it's unconscious um, and it doesn't know how to do anything but look outside of itself to climb. In, in, in Dante's Inferno, there's a mountain called Mount Delectable and, and, it's, one of, and it's in the, one of the circles of hell and it's one of the most dangerous places because it's this beautiful, really appealing looking mountain full of deliciousness and everybody wants to climb it and they're constantly falling off it to their deaths. And our entire culture is Mount Delectable. You know, our entire culture is like every, everything you're being told that you should want that will make you happy. And we're so clever and we're so resourceful with our technology that we've managed to create just delectable after delectable, after delectable, after delectable from a friend of mine in recovery says, if it's not a she says in my life, if it's not a, a martini, it's a, it's a man. If it's not a man, it's a muffin. If it's not a muffin, it's a MasterCard. You know, there's, and the culture creates men, martinis, muffins, MasterCards, you know, then markets them, you know, and, 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 and the dangerous thing is that it does work, you know, um, it wouldn't be successful if it didn't work. You get the hit, you get the hit. It feels really good to buy something new. It feels, it feels really good for me to buy something new. Like, it's great. You get it, you get a buzz from it. The problem is 
it's Mount Delectable. You can never get to the top of it. And eventually, you know, you fall off and crash. Um, so how do you do relationships in that? How do you do relationships where you're not commoditizing a person? Um, how, how, when everyone is, has, is walking around with so much emptiness, do people relate? It's, um, I don't know. Um, I think it's, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have that. I don't have that mastered. I mean, the closest I've gotten to it was with my partner, Rhea. Um, and the reason that we had that was that we were best friends for 17 years. And there was 17 years where she was gay. I'm, I was allegedly straight. I was married she was respectful of the marriage. I was respectful of the marriage. We were all friends with each other. So there was this built-in, this, I don't know how you replicate that because there was this built-in boundary where sex wasn't on the table. Um, and so what we got to have instead was incredible intimacy and incredible trust and incredible like stewardship of each other and, and proving year after year that we had each other, showing up for each other, nurturing each other until love grew without our noticing it, um, into what was, what I can only call the only true love that I've ever really, really known because all of that was, was not even involved. Um, so that by the time we came together as a couple, we were building on 17 years of, of intimacy. How do you do that again? Like, how do you like date someone for 17 years and not have sex with them and then finally do it? Um, and, and we had a, a beautiful way of relating and we both understood that we were in earth school. Like, I think it helps if you're with somebody who also believes that you're in earth school, that you're a soul that's come here to, to learn. Um, and, and that everything that you learn is, is for your own, is for your development and everyone you meet is a teacher. So if you're with somebody who can see it that way, it's helpful, but it doesn't get rid of all the options. How did that reframe your understanding of the erotic and the neurotic attachments that you've had <laughs> in um, previous relationships. How did you find, uh, like, because presumably an intimate friendship in which you're married to someone else, that sort of one, the, the most obvious, I'm sure there are many, many other distinctions, but the most obvious distinction between when after you uh, were in a committed relationship with Raya was that there was a physical component to it was that physical component commensurate with the underlying sense of connectedness? Because I, I, to give you the context of that question, is that that I, for as a sort of a person that had like lived in sort of sex addiction and love addiction for a long while, mm -hmm. I always had a kind of bifurcation between those yeah. two things. Yeah. I always found it easier to have a physical relationships with people if I didn't know them intimately and well. And you know, so yeah. how was that? How did those two areas, or if they, if indeed they are two separate areas, did they feel distinct? Did were they complementary? And was that an unusual component of the relationship? Well, I also, I feel again, almost with one of your early questions, like I want to begin by just laying down, a, like bowing down to humility on this, of, 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 of owning my own awareness that my own sex and love addiction is far from cured, you know? Um, so anything that I say is going to have to move through that filter a little bit and, um, I don't have as clean and clear a relationship with those questions as I do with, say, it's much easier for me to just spout off about creativity because 
it's such a it's it's such a clear channel for me um and in this case you know i'm i don't i i don't know whether i'm how can i say, an expert or a master on any of this but i can say that in in that there's one really special beautiful thing and i don't know how or if i would ever even need to replicate it it might have just been healing enough to know it once um but one of my best friends the the day before i had sex with raya for the first time and there was also all of this was done with no backhandedness like i didn't know how in love with raya i was i didn't even allow myself to really bring it up but once she was died what happened is that she was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic and liver cancer and i was told she had 6 months to live and very soon after that diagnosis it's like that part of myself i'd never allowed myself to see finally came forward and i the next conversation i had was with my husband um and i and i said i i'm having these feelings toward raya and i'm i'm in i think i'm in love with raya and before i even talked to her about it um and and he said of course you're in love with raya you've been in love with raya for 8 years like a ray charles could see that you're in love with raya you know like this has been and and in the most i mean i'm simplifying it but in the most gracious generous extraordinary act i've ever seen any man do he he stepped out of the way um and allowed me without with very, with no shaming with no just allowed that to be true because i think he could see that it was true um but still extraordinary extraordinary honor and grace in that moment but so then there was just this thrilling thing of like ray and i get to have sex <laughs> you know like we'd like this is somebody i had I, I my favorite person on earth um my anchor the ground under my feet like my teacher and i had been hers and like the the exchange of love between us was so huge and now we get to also have this and um and a friend of mine said that the day before you're about to experience something that you've never experienced before and that you may never experience again and that is love before sex um and it's true i'd never experienced that before um i don't know if many of us have um like true love true love before sex um in that sense of there's nothing else that i could possibly learn about this person other than this is the last thing we don't know about each other um and now we get to know this too um it was it was extraordinary and it was a a once in a lifetime thing and i'm very happy for it to be a once in a lifetime thing it would be madness to try to think you could go get, get that you know on tinder or <laughs> like meet someone and you just get you know that's it's just not there but i mean i'm just lucky to have been to have been given that you have a, like a real uh, first for sacredness i suppose that's how you burst into public consciousness is the ability to and it seems an ability that not many people possess if the state of the world is anything to go by to translate a uh, sacred divine connection in unfussy unpretentious yet still beautiful language how uh do you f do you, where else do you feel like you are going to apply that ability i know you sort of uh, spoken about like um you know politics somewhat like but in particular i suppose sort of trump maybe and like a sort of a, what he maybe represents mm -hmm. i've heard you sort of talk about that sort of strong man idea and i said would assume sort of like misogyny and stuff um 
how do you th- how do you contribute to that conversation what do you think that conversation is lacking and what do you think what the hell is going on <laughs> okay so a couple things i'm really bad at one is social engineering <laughs> um world building world changing um i admit defeat before i've begun on that you know um that doesn't mean apathy. It just means um, you had Byron Katie on your show, right? And she's got that great line where she says, um, whenever I argue against reality, I lose, but only always. Um, there's <laughs> So how do I, so for me on the personal level, my question is to me, and again, I don't have the full answer to it, but it's the question I live in. How do I engage with fight against this system while at the same time being realistic about its scope compared to my scope Um, and staying in my lane in terms of the limitations of my power, which is, I think, a lot of what sobriety is, um, is recognizing where you surrender, where you've come to the end of your power, right? Um, The night Trump was elected that was a moment of recognizing what it feels like to come to the end of your power. Um, you know, I can't, you know, as, as you're watching the, the delegates reporting in and, and the states falling, you know, I couldn't, I can't do anything about that <laughs> that night. I remember I was with Rhea and she was rec- recently diagnosed and she'd recently stopped chemo because there was no hope only a week before that. And, um, and we were watching what we were expecting to be the first female president, what the world was expecting to be, this amazing moment of the first female president and the most competent person who had ever run for office in the United States, the most qualified candidate, you know, ever. We were like, yay, let's watch this great moment. And then, you know, the terror and the horror and the running and the screaming started. (laughs) We were doing what everyone was doing, freebasing Twitter, smoking CNN, changing channels, calling it, you know, what the fuck is happening? What the fuck is happening? What the fuck is happening? This can't be happening. And at one point I looked over and I, I got detached enough to see us. And what I saw was we were each in a different corner of the couch, curled into a ball, chewing on our limbs, you know? (laughs) And I said, okay, this has to stop right now. Um, because there's absolutely nothing that, that we as individuals are going to be able to do tonight about this. So all media off. And, and, and it was obvious that he was going to win. I, and I was like, I don't need to watch this. I'm also Russell, probably the only person you'll ever meet who never saw the footage of the second plane hitting the twin towers. Um, when on that morning, when everyone was saying, turn your TVs on, once I figured out what was happening, I turned it off. Um, and this is out of stewardship to my consciousness and the awareness that if I put that in my, if I put that, those images in my mind, they will never come out and I can know about them without having to see them. So I'll read about it in the New York times, but I'm not going to assault my senses with something that my mind will never be able to unsee. And that's how I felt the night of, of Trump also like enough, this is happening. It's going to happen. And we went for a walk. Everyone outside was, it was New York City. People were losing their fucking minds. You know, it was, they were, there was an insanity out there too. So we came back inside and turned off all the electronics and lit candles and said, okay, we're just going to pray for the rest of the night. 
um, and return at least two people to some sort of stillness, some sort of connection. Um, and I remember I did like a very Liz Gilbert prayer that was all about like, you know, help me to, to not close my heart toward people who I don't understand and, and let this be a learning opportunity, you know, <laughs> opportunity. Let him be the great awakener who brings forth the, the, the demonic sides of our culture that need to be revealed. Let, you know, all of this kind of, you know, and then Rhea stands up and Rhea, you know, former speedball heroin junkie, you know, formerly homeless prison inmate, badass Detroit Syrian lesbian Arab bat, you know, just fierce, like just this very different energy than my energy and terminally ill who had just uh, gotten rid of her, you know, gotten rid of her chemo the week before and just had decided to live until she died and knew, knew that she was on very much borrowed time. She just stands there in the middle of the room and she puts her fists up in the sky. She goes, you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? First cancer and now fucking this? Like, th fucking seriously? This is what we're fucking doing? This is your fucking plan? And, and she just had this, like, Old Testament, intimate relationship collision with the divine that is, oh, is one of the ways to pray. You know, um, like there's the prayer of rage and indignation is one of the sacred prayers. You're allowed to do it that way. And it doesn't all have to be fucking incense. <laughs> you know? So so she's just up and then she just goes, I'll just never forget it. I can still see her face just lit with like anger and death and beauty. And she just looked up at the sky and she goes, this is how you want to dance? Let's dance. Let's dance. And okay, these are the new terms of the world. I'm in this world now, let's dance. Um, to answer your question, what I'm doing personally on the political level is trying to figure out ways that I can reverse, <laughs> again, it's a big task, but I, I try to do it, model it in my own life, take resources from where they've always been, which is wealthy white people, and put them toward where they've never been, which is women of, women of color. Um, and just what could work better than just flipping that, right? So um, rather than wait for my country to come along and do reparations, I, <laughs> I personally do whatever I can, give money to directly, um, money, money for which nothing is expected. Um, just here, I'm setting up an account every month, I'm sending you $1,000 you're a woman of color doing important work in the world here. Like, I just want to support you directly. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm not optimistic that the day will come when America says we owe you guys this. Um, but personally, I can do it, you know, um, and, and I can spotlight their work and I can try to use whatever, whatever power and resources I have to shift to the opposite of who's in charge. Um, and since white men have always been in charge, then, okay, I'm going to give it to women of color. Um, and, and that's my, that's my channeling of, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's on a very small scale cause I'm one person. Um, but that's what I've got. What's that group, the rowers or rowing that you support that's getting young women like I, I, I'm interested in that cause I think it's getting young women in row boats and rowing and kids out of the oh <laughs> yeah it's called row New York and it's an amazing organization run by a, a woman I know in New York City who was a competitive 
um, crew rower, like um, national champion. And she was also a social worker. And she decided that a really great way to help kids in underserved neighborhoods was to get them on in boats on the Hudson River. Like she managed to talk the New York City Parks Department into letting her put a bunch of kids who couldn't swim into boats off of New York City Parks Department docks. She's one of these people who just makes things happen and um, and takes them from middle school. So she she starts them when they're about 13, 12 or 13. And it started with just girls, but now there's boys too. And um, teaches them how to row as a team together. And these kids are winning national oh championships God. now. Um, yeah, they're amazing. And the really beautiful thing is she built this this gorgeous boathouse on on the um, Harlem River for them. It's so bu- bu- bucolic, and it's around these really troubled neighborhoods. But it's this, you know, it's like looks like a nineteenth century Englishman's folly. You know, this like beautiful place with with flowers and beautiful light. And the kids come there after school, and they. Um, they work out, they train, and they row, and it's such a great sport because it's about trust and team and team building. You know that there's no ego in it. It's it's four or eight bodies moving as one, and they and they develop this incredible bond with each other. And then they spend after that they stay at the boathouse until probably nine or ten o'clock at night doing homework together. They've got volunteers who come in and tutor, help them with SAT prep, college applications. Um, and they basically take them all the way through into college. And then, as Amanda, the woman who runs it, told me, getting these kids into universities isn't the hard thing because universities want, they're looking, you know, for diversity. So they're looking for kids from these neighborhoods and these kids have done really well academically. It's really hard to get them to stay because once they go into the university setting, they feel so isolated because they came from the projects and they came from poverty and they feel like they're with really rich kids and they don't belong and they're maybe the, they're obviously the first person in their family to get educated they feel a lot of tribal shaming and loyalty like I can't be better than my family and they tend to drop out and so they work with them not only to get them into school but through school and um, the statistic that I think is so amazing is that 99% of no sorry 100% of the kids who go through Rowe New York graduate from high school 99% of them graduate from college oh, wow. Um, so they, they send them care packages. They, you know, they just never stop taking care of them and checking in on them and, and talking to the college administrators and saying, you got to, this is a really special kid. You got to look out for this kid. Don't lose this one. Um, you know, anything that you can do for her. And yeah, it's just extraordinary. 250 kids a year go through that program. Um, I mean, again, it would be nice if, if, if we lived in a culture where our, where our governments and municipalities cared and it didn't have to be some private citizen doing this by hand. Um, but as long as it is that way, she's somebody who I support as much as I can. Yes. Um, again, I suppose I've been thinking a lot about um, where we find sacredness in everyday life. And I suppose the more I speak to you, I, I feel like it has to be everywhere in everything all of the time, even if it's in the profanity of indignant prayer or in the acceptance of external things not maneuvering in accordance with our wishes with our own creativity with the way that we relate to one another because really I suppose you sort of it seems like you 
well you do i know because i've read stuff and read your stuff like you believe in god and it seems like that's a that's the, is that the most important thing to you the belief in, a connection to god and acting in accordance with that belief i.e oneness compassion because there is an underlying oneness beyond apparent separation and that there is real beauty a voluptuousness not a kind of you know let's deny everything yeah i i do i do believe in god and i can't do without it when i don't when i slip from that i don't do well um so when i slip from the sacred into the profane, I do as well as anybody does in the profane, <laughs> which is only as well as the day is going, right? Um, if you don't have any sacredness, your day can only be measured in what did you get? What did you win? Um, how were you stroked? How were, how was, how were you praised? Um, did things go your way? You know, um, and that means that you're at the mercy of the chaos of, um, of losing and winning um, having and not having life and death even, you know? Um, so I have to be grounded in the sacredness or else I, I really do suffer and the suffering happens immediately. Um, just because I believe in God doesn't mean I know what God is. Um, and, and if I did know what God was, it wouldn't be God. <laughs> um, it, it just, if it were, if it were knowable, then it wouldn't be God. Um, so I'm, I'm really comfortable believing in something that I don't need to understand. Um, my, my best friend and I have a, a line that we always say, if you want to take a really quick day trip to hell, just ask any question that begins with the word why. <laughs> um, and you just, it's like, a, it's like a trap door that opens you right into hell. Um, so all of the questions that typically separate people from the sacred are things like, um, well, if God is, exists, why is Trump president? You know, um, that's a day trip to hell that you can take. You can spend, you can take a picnic, just spend the day in hell on that question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, I, why, why, you know, why wouldn't it be? It's a world. The world is acting as the world does it. It's, it's chaotic and changing and, and, and there's free will. And I don't know how much of it is free will. And I don't know how much, of, I don't know how any of it, I don't know how any of it works. I don't even know if, you and I are having this conversation. I don't know if you exist um, or whether you're just a projection of my consciousness. I don't know. I mean, what I think is fascinating about where the mystics and the physicists combine are starting to collide is that the closer people are getting down to the quantum level of physics, the more they're starting to sound like mystics. And just saying, you know, I went recently to see two Nobel Prize winning physicists speak, and I'm delighted to say that I understood point zero one percent of what they were saying but it was fascinating to watch them engage and and i was just honored to be able to sit in the audience in, in the presence of two minds that are so different from my own and and see them talk about the nature of the universe and hear them basically say in a million different ways sometimes explicitly we have no idea what's going on here <laughs> and and the one thing i can tell you what the one nobel prize winning physicist said the one thing i can absolutely promise you is that nothing is what it appears and that everything that just because he had this great thing where he said the biggest leap of intelligent consciousness that happens in a human mind occurs between the between birth and about seven or eight months old, where human beings in a healthy cognitive mind create time and space. Um, so they take this atomic soup of matter and then they divide it into 
okay, here's me, here's you. Um, this is back then, this is forward. This is, you know, and, and they make a world out of it, out of their consciousness. And he said, it's amazing what we do. And he said, just because every human being who has ever lived with the same, with a, a healthy, normal human consciousness agrees on what time and space is, doesn't make it true. <laughs> and it's very convenient because we've all decided to agree on it, but it doesn't make it true. I love stuff like that. I just, I just like want to take a bath in it, you know, cause it's exactly what the mystics have always said. Um, and so there's a, there's a great humility that I feel in, I don't expect to understand what it is. I don't need to understand what it is. I think it's a really interesting gig to be a human being. Um, I think it's a really interesting planet to live on. And as long as I remain interested rather than so appalled that I get sick, um, then I can, I can usually <laughs> continue to engage in it. And also I should say, just because I believe in God doesn't mean I always trust God. And so I am constantly taking my will back by having opinions, um, about this is wrong. That's wrong. This shouldn't be that way. That person shouldn't act that way. This isn't how this government, sh you know, um, if I fully, fully trusted in the divine, you know, I'd be like Byron Katie. I'd just be like watching the show, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Um, but I'm not that, I'm not that, you know, so I still get, you know, I still get bent and twisted and, and frustrated and angry. Um, but I also have the ability at times to step back and watch the show to be as, as Whitman said, both in and out of the game. Um, I love the way Ram Dass speaks about it too, of, of, can you embrace your karmic predicament? Can you know that none of this is real and at the same time live a good life and be like, okay, I'm not really this person, but since I'm playing this role, how can I play it well? Um, and and can you hold the paradox of those both, both of those things to be true? I've often thought, Elizabeth, that the golden scale of comedy is based on precisely that tension, that we have a sense that we are immersed in these roles and it's a game, it's not real. And in the moment of comedy... You sort of look yeah. beyond it. There's a kind of an ambiguity about the trickster figure living between worlds, living beyond ethics and morality, living in liminal spaces, knowing like it's yes. a sort of game and isn't it funny? I looked up, I'm fascinated by the trickster and I'm also fascinated, I wrote in Big Magic about the difference between the trickster and the martyr, right? Um, so... So the trickster, me being a trickster creator means that I can say to a reviewer, I know, isn't it funny that I don't know how to write a character that isn't two-dimensional? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Anyway, I'm doing my best. Tra-la-la, like Bugs Bunny, just like chomp off and be fine, you know? Um, and the martyr would be like, I have to kill myself because my book's not good enough, right? Um, and, and so wouldn't it be so much more playful to be the trickster than the martyr? The question of morality is always really interesting because the martyr has a very heavy moral moral code um, that can literally become just destructive. Um, the trickster would never die for anything, you know. Like I'm not going to die for your dumb moral code, you know. Like the trickster is like, I'm, well, you have your war. I'm going to sell black market cigarettes over around the corner and like profit from this. And and I remember looking up the trickster icon once. Um, the iconography of the trickster. And I found this really great website that had all the gods of history on this massive chart and like who they are, what is, what is their avatar? Um, when were they first, you know, all of them. And so there was this whole category on tricksters 
and there were, you know, there's fox and there's the, the, the hare and um, monkey, uh, you know, all the animals that the crow, um, all the animals that have represented trickster energy over the years. And there's this one African deity that's centered in the hare that they think actually came along with the slaves to the American South and became Br'er Rabbit um, because it's an ancient African trickster god. And one of the things on the chart says, um, what is the morality of this god, right? So, and it'd be like, you know, this is evil, good, punishing, blah, blah, blah. So they get to the trickster rabbit and, and it's on the chart, it says, what is the morality of the trickster rabbit? And it says, none, maybe doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> maybe didn't care about morality. And I, that was just filled, it just filled me with joy because when you encounter that, it's 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 beyond morality. It's just maybe doesn't care. Maybe just wants to to play with form, um, and to turn the the reality upside down. It's so joyful to be in the company of that, and that's comedy. Yeah, yeah. Because maybe doesn't the care. martyr will die because it's a, a the the morality is an absolute reality. There are absolutes mm -hmm. here here on this frequency in this realm. The trickster knows this is but one None. of many 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 potential realities and we're all connected <laughs> to the absolute so it's all kind of funny i i like that i like that there is a sort of an possibly an essence to comedy about the revelation of an ulterior realm that is sort of nihilistic so you can laugh at anything if what's underlying it is not a sort of a sense of cruelty and hierarchy within this sort of declared space, but a kind of reference to what's beyond it. Rhea was saying, I mean, there was so much laughter even going up to, I mean, tragedy tears and her, and for her re re dipping into addiction as well. I mean, it was, it was, it was a harrowing experience the last 18 months of her life, but there was also a lot of laughter in it. And, we just coined a phrase, if, if you can't laugh at death, get out of show business. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And this whole world is show business. Like there's a level at which it's like, oh, well, you know, um, and and there is that, that great, beautiful thing, um, which you do so very well, you know, and I know you're, I know you're, I can't believe I'm about to give you advice. Please do. But oh, well, it's coming out. But it's just, I know how seriously you take social activism and how seriously you take politics and how you've positioned yourself in that in in a real way i just don't become a martyr um because you we really need you to remain a trickster um because so few people are are intuitively that you know i i mean i might be straying out of my lane here but that's so obviously to me what your great service is um so just don't die for anything you know um. oh thank you thank you that's a good tip because sometimes <laughs> yeah. the ego and the narcissism would love a bit of the old martyrdom wouldn't it be <laughs> nice um it just it just doesn't you know i don't know just don't die for anything just don't die on any hill like don't in the same way that you decided not to die of of your other addictions you know um don't become a political martyr not even now not even in this climate um you know just keep keep some play in you because you really, really help us when you oh, do that. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. That's such a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful compliment. And uh, it, it hit home. It hit home. Uh, I felt it sort of like in there somewhere. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm going to take that very seriously. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and with 
your gift and with your beauty and I bet you were a very, very good seduction addict because after only an hour with you, I'm willing to walk away from everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be really, really fun until it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we'll just we'll just keep it keep here. Keep it here, <laughs> digitally framed, two dimensional, where it could still potentially be a projection of each other's consciousness. <laughs> I love you, sweetheart. Thank you for um, having me, and thank you for just your great, great, great spirit in this world. Oh, thank you. Um, I just I. And fascinated by how you are living the predicament of your incarnation. I'm really fascinated by it, and and I'll be watching because it's it's a it's a great show. <laughs> Thank you. I'm taking <laughs> the Russell, trips to the Russell Brand show is a great, great, great show. Um, whether you're on or off stage, um, so bought, bearing in who, who do you have your there? advice in mind, they're going to be a lot more this and a lot less this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, wait, you know what? Speaking of that, you just pointed to Christ. Um, I said to a friend of mine who's a, a really progressive pastor, one of the things that's missing in Christianity is there's no trickster. And and he said, no, Christ was the trickster because Christ was the one who came and was the radical and was the rebel. But then the the system made him into the martyr. Um, but, but his original role was trickster, wordplay, paradoxes, parables, um, taking everybody who's out of power, putting them into power, flipping the the paradigm, um, and I was like, "Oh my god, I never realized." Uh, not that. really dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not really. Yeah, exactly, not really dead. Exactly, the ultimate trick. So, um, anyway, um, blessings to you, honey, and and to your family. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with me and Elizabeth Gilbert. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me. Tag her. Tag everybody. Just say tags around like a lunatic, like a and like you're at an orgy of tagging. Sign up to my mailing list. That's at russellbrand.com to get uh, exclusive mailing list content. Always good. And go back and listen to uh, Lena Dunham or Julia Cameron or Brené Brown on uh, this uh, on on Luminary. For God's sake, keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Some days there'll be one. One there won't. Is there one every day, Jen? Every second day, but you'll never know which day that is. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.